Good morning, afternoon, evening, or wherever and whenever we find you. Thanks for joining us at Doth Protest Too Much. I feel like I've missed y'all because uh, it's, it, I know it's probably only been a, a week or two since our last episode, but it, just, and it seems like, like such a long time, and so I've missed everyone. I have a sense of listenership of people, so um, we uh, thank you for tuning in this evening. This evening, we have Dr. Edwards, J. Stephen Edwards. He is the host of SomeGrayMatter.com, a website devoted to the ongoing research of Lady Jane Grey or Queen Jane the uh, First. Um, Edwards' research is uh, dedicated, I would say, to an approach uh, with a, and he could correct me if I'm wrong, a healthy balance of skepticism, but nevertheless, nevertheless tries to find and determine uh, what is authentic versus what uh, is not authentic in the life and story of Lady Jane Grey. And to clarify where certain myths had maybe arisen over the different interpretations of her life uh, since her life and death. And he is the author of several books. And he is also um, the, uh, he was also featured in the recent uh, docudrama, I would call it, uh, of England's Forgotten Queen, which is uh, you can actually view it on Amazon uh, for uh, very cheaply, I believe. I watched it because I have an IMD, IMDb TV account. I was able to watch it for free with ads, and I watched most of it, but not all of it. And uh, and uh, he they bring Dr. Edwards on uh, quite a bit in that series. And, and, uh, he brings some great insights to the story of Jane Gray and some just good factual information as well. So Dr. Edwards, I must ask you, how did you get interested in Lady Jane Gray? I ask that question a lot, as I'm sure you can imagine. In 1986, Paramount Pictures put out a film called Lady Jane with Helena Bonham Carter playing the role of Jane Gray. And it was, Abundantly, because I already had a background in theater history, it was abundantly clear that the sort of narrative of that film was absolute rubbish. And so I embarked on um, her as a historical topic. When you do a PhD in history, you have to do it on a subject that either has never been done or you have to approach a done subject in a new way. And that was my goal. Actually, Jane Grey had, had never been studied until 2010, had not been studied by academics in any depth at all. Wow. Smith, in the historical canon, she's just Smith. She gets a paragraph, and that's it. Um, so I was kind of the first, but I also took a very different approach from all of the, um, I don't want to say amateur because some of them aren't, but all of the, the writers in history who have written about her. And I, I don't mean to sound snobby, but I do differentiate between people who write in history and people who are academic historians. Because there is a different methodology, there's a different training that's brought to bear by academics like myself that non-academics don't have access. Right. I, and, um, and that's interesting you say, so it's, it's never been done academically until 2010. I, I kind of had a sense of that. Um, so, it, uh, so kind of like to, um, I was going to actually put this kind of later in the episode, 
but I'll just go ahead and say it now. Uh, my interest in, in Lady Jane Grey, I guess, started kind of started in 1998-99, so well before the 2010 <laughs> academic interest in it. Uh, and I read some popular, I, I was very young, I was a teenager. Um, and so I read some kind of popular works on it, works by Allison Ware and things like that. There's a funny story. I was, a, I was, uh, like I said, young, I mean, middle school, I wasn't even a teenager. And I remember on my grandparents video shelf, they had a video of the movie young and innocent directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It's a 1930s Alfred Hitchcock thriller in his Hitchcock's early days when he was still in Britain before Hollywood. And uh, maybe we'll have some film buffs in our listeners. They'll, they'll, they'll definitely uh, know this movie. But And I, ha- I used to have those Leonard Maltin movie guides that would have like just an index of all the movies and the ratings. And I'd look up, they'd have an index of uh, act- actors and actresses in the back. And I, I knew the lead actress of Young and Innocent was a British actress named Nova Pilbeam, who I guess was a big deal at the time, but um, yeah. has well faded out since then. But she played Lady Jane Grey. And so uh, as I became a class, I was a classic movie buff as a teenager. And as I like would seek out these movies and even purchase some in the days, early days of the internet, um, I ended up seeing Nova Pilbeam's portrayal of Lady Jane Grey. And so... Um, which I thought was is probably not the most historically accurate movie, just like the 1986 movie is not. <laughs> but uh, it was an enjoyable film, you know. And uh, Pillbeam played Lady Jane, and uh, but I read some of the Alice in Ware books, and, and I and I had the feeling, yes, there were a lot of popular interpretations of her. Um, uh, and I would say the yeah, sorry, go ahead. I'll, I'll give you a, a sort of telling example of how the academic community has treated Jane Grey. I submitted a book proposal to one of the big academic publishers many years ago, and they criticized me for not having cited or referenced Alison Cloudy's House of Suffolk or her book about Lady Jane Grey. They're the same book reissued under it. They criticized me for not having referenced or cited that work. And my response to that was, that Alison Cloudman was a BBC script writer. She was not a historian. Right. But her, until until um, until Leandra Delisle published her book in 2010, and then Eric Ives published his. Alison Cloudman was the academic standard for Jane Grey, written by a BBC script writer. Right. And it, it's interesting that, I mean, you would think that there would be at least a niche in, in the academic world of Lady Jane You know, uh, it's just so it's just so interesting that she's been the subject of so many popular interpretations and not all of them bad necessarily, but that there hasn't been the academic interest until relatively recently. Um, you know, Tudor, the Tudors and Tudor England uh, have been incredibly popular on the popular level with TV shows, Netflix series, movies, etc. Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, and so on. And, uh, right. Uh, but they've also shared Tudor England and also the English Reformation have really had their share of great scholarship. I mean, Dearman McCulloch, you name it. Um, 
you know, scholarship on Edward, Elizabeth. Uh, and, and so it, it's interesting that it, it has been a, it's a, they're few and far between, I think Eric Ives, for instance. So, um, so, um, and we brought some guests on in the recently in the podcast on the English Reformation. I encourage our listeners to kind of listen to past episodes. Uh, but let's start off. This this is interesting. So there's a wild. Let's start off with a wild theory. I know we will get into biographical things about Jane in a short time, but to give a very uh, basic overview, Jane was the cousin. Uh, the the grand she was a grand granddaughter of Henry. Um, the eighth sister, correct? Correct. Correct. And um, Henry, of course, had three children. They all ended up becoming a monarch. Interestingly, uh, it doesn't happen a lot. Uh, and they all had the different, different, differing religious allegiances between uh, the three children. They all characterize, I think, illustrate well kind of the differing religious allegiances of the 16th century. Uh, that the you know, the conflicts of the confirmation are directly tied to. But Jane is a young girl, sits on the throne for a very, very, very short time. We'll see if it's really your nine days or not. We'll get that in the moment. But of course, um, uh, but there's a bizarre theory because, you know, Mary finally gains the throne. Young Jane is executed. We know, we know at least those bits. But there's a bizarre theory that you mentioned on your website, somegraymatter.com, and I've never heard of this before. Does that Jane's death was staged or fake? And that the real Jane was actually perhaps pardoned or went on to dot, 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 dot. I'll let you get into that part. Tell us about this crazy theory. I'm really curious. That's not my theory, and that's not on my website. I'm sorry. Really? Really. I really read I, you, won't, you won't find that on some gray matter. I know the theory you're talking about, and there's a guy who's actually written novels to that effect. I have an article on there about, in which I refute a theory that James survived and went on to write the work of Shakespeare. Right. You mentioned, you mentioned this person. Right. But that's not my theory. Oh, I know it's not your theory. Oh, okay. You, you mentioned no, 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 no. This was not your theory. You mentioned a crazy yeah. theory on your website, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, who in the world would have thought of that?" Yeah, I, but I was curious in more details. Like, how did you run into this? When, when you do it, when you're obsessed with Sangre as I am, or when that's your major health step, when that's your major topic of research, you keep track of all the stuff that mm. now. And some of it's legit and some of it's not. But at the same time, I also get contacted by a lot of people who want me to confirm what they're doing. And I've had some really, I mean, I've had even more bizarre contacts than that. They yeah. don't up on my website because it's too far out there. Um, but I don't remember whether this individual contacted me or whether I saw his stuff. I think I saw his stuff in a search one time. And just kind of rolls my eyes. Uh, there's a, a book out in circulation right now that, as I understand it, purports that Jane Grey is actually the daughter of Henry VIII. Daughter of Henry VIII? Daughter of Henry really? VIII. Really? <laughs> put into the Grey household to be raised. I mean, this, you name it, people will come up with this oddball stuff for purposes of novelization to sell something through Kindle books. And then the general public will latch onto it and take it as 
gospel. I, I find that the general public has a great deal of difficulty distinguishing between novels and factual history. Even teaching undergraduates, if I had a dime for every time a student in class has raised their hand and said, but that's not it, what, that's the, not the way it was on Showtime's The Tutors. Like, no, wait, Showtime's The Tutors was not factual. Nothing about right. it is factual. It, it, is a, it is a fun show to watch, I will admit that. But yeah, I mean, you can't take that as a... Uh... But people do take that. Yeah. Why would Hollywood write something that wasn't real? Right. Based on actual events means it's word-for-word word real. Right. That's a huge problem in history. Mm -hmm. all across the board not just oh yeah well yeah i mean uh well i mean we see that all over the you know uh i i think like 12 15 years ago when people thought the da vinci code was exposing some big thing like well exactly (laughs) there's a lot of liberties um but yeah you know no i saw that reference on your site Uh, and i sorry i should have clarified but I was like, you know, wow, that's interesting. Like, uh, I, and it, it it's interesting because I, I never knew uh, interest in Jane. I mean, I know the tutors sell a lot. I mean, there's that that story sells, especially the Henry and all the wives. I was like, well, I didn't know there was like a a big following of Jane Grey that manifests itself in like uh, these type of you know conspiracy. Type it was just interesting. I was like, so. Well, it's yeah. interesting it's, it's, as it is in, like, you see on antique structure, it's business about collecting and it appeals to two markets. That particular theory appeals to two markets. It hits the Tudor and Jane Grey fans, but it also hits the Shakespeare fans. As I'm sure you're aware, there is a big academic debate about did Shakespeare write his own work or was he a sure. writer sundry other people right and and so that that particular theory or novel bites into both uh both fan bases and expands the sales potential right i'm being very cynical but i mean that is the reality right yeah um so so I know we kind of gave a brief introduction to Jane Grey, but uh, perhaps we can get a better biographical overview from yourself uh, before we kind of dive into the ways of her, into the ways that her life and story um, have have been interpreted. So uh, I guess a good place to start. I mean, like, where was she born, and what places did she live uh, in her life? It's not documented where she was born or when she was born. Neither things are documented. Mm-hmm. And that's not uncommon in the period. Um, sure. She was a woman, and women were not at the center of attention. I won't say they weren't important, but the records for women tend to be much, much sparser than they are for men. But even still, a lot of famous men, we don't know the exact date they were born. Uh, my belief, based on my own research, is that she was probably born sometime around November, December, January of 1536-37. And I believe she was born in London, not at Braxton. Okay. Is, is Braxton considered, uh, has it been a traditionally considered place? or? Braxton is always said to have been the place she was born, and certainly as a historical site in England, they market themselves that way. Sure. Uh, but there is ample evidence to suggest that that's not like 
Okay. Um, her parents, uh, you know, I know you, you can run through the family tree that, of course, her uh, mother is a is descends from well, she descends as well from Henry the Seventh. So, I mean, she's in cousinship with the Tudors and the, the Tudor royalty. Um, what did the but they so they had these noble titles. I mean, they were somehow in connection with a line of succession. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in a little bit, I guess. But her parents, Francis, and was it what was her father's name? Henry. Henry Gray. They um, they had noble titles. What did these noble titles entail? Um, Henry was born into a family that was titled Marquess of Dorset, and essentially one of his ancestors, and I, I believe it was grandfather or great-grandfather, grandfather, was um, a courtier, a military commander, and was an assistant to Edward IV. And in return for his services to the crown, he was given a title of nobility, land, wealth, etc. That was how the, the, the governmental system rewarded its service. The servants were not salaried at, at that time. They didn't you know, go to the employment office and receive a weekly check. They were rewarded with title, status, and wealth, land. Um, Francis was the daughter of the Duke of Suffolk, Charles Brandon, who had married Henry's younger sister, Mary Tudor, after Mary had been Queen of France. All very confusing. Um, but she didn't have a title as such. She was simply the Lady Francis Brandon at the time she married Henry, but she was a granddaughter of a king and a daughter of, of a queen. So that imparted certain status to her. Okay. And then of course Henry's title changed over time as you know as history evolved. Sure. Given greater and greater titles. Um and I know I know you already mentioned uh, the nineteen eighty six movie Lady Jane. Um which I suspect you'd agree with uh, all sorts of problems related to historical accuracy or inaccuracy. Um, and in the, you know, in the film, her parents are portrayed as pretty strict, um, maybe almost abusive, uh, perhaps even for that time. Uh, and I know if I recall correctly, there were, there were primary sort, primary sources of sorts that may, may, have attested to they may not have attested to the popular depiction but at least suggest that they were very stern right um is this what you have found in in your research and and i'm i forgive me because i'm drawing a blank on what that source even was but i remember kind of being said about them okay i'm going to turn you around and we're going to start with the source which was one of her uh one of the visitors to brad that it was a sort of a, a friend of the family, if you will. Um, and suddenly, Roger Ashen. I was almost drawing a blank myself. Roger Ashen was the tutor to King Edward VI, who was at this point already the king. Mm-hmm. So you know, the king's tutor, that's an important person. He paid a visit to Bradgett at one point 
and he wrote a letter to someone shortly afterwards in which he described her sitting alone in the main hall reading a book in the corner, specifically Plato's Biden, which is a very advanced text, um, while the rest of the family was out hunting. And from that, the myth and legend has developed that she was exceedingly scholarly and withdrawn and self-isolating and blah, 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 blah. Basically, people have taken that primary source and extrapolated from it to create a myth that is not supportable by the primary source. Sure. So there was some maybe sternness in his experience, but people have run wild with it. Is what you're... Well, he does go on to describe Jane stating that anytime she did anything, she suffered, suffered nips and bombs. And basically, what today we would say the typical teenager fits off of her parents. She couldn't do anything right for them. Sure. And Elmer does make the statement that the parents beat her. Now, it is extremely important to contextualize that. Mm -hmm. There were actually prescriptive, what, what we as historians call prescriptive manuals, how-to books, the Dr. Spock books of their day that instructed parents on how to beat their children where to hit them, what to use to hit them, open hand, never a closed fist, never above the net, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this was part and parcel of the culture of the day. Sure. It was a very, very violent culture. Executions were forms of entertainment. Like if you did a minor crime, committed a minor crime, they would take your ear and drive a nail through it into a post which we call being pillory. That's what we refer to it today. That's what being pilloried means. They take your ear out, they draw the nail through it into the post, and you have to sit there until your ear rots and falls off or you rip it through. That's violent. Yeah. I mean, unspeakably, like, terrible for today. But, um, you know, if that was the standard of that day, I mean, um, <laughs> you know, any uh, Gray's parents could have, well been laxed in oh, exactly you know Maybe we don't know in that context chaining the child is very very minor you know spare the rod and spoil the child that was the adage right the children were routinely chained right the rod. right uh, and see. it is also important to recognize that, that aylmer was a proponent of doing away with that sure so he's kind of got his own agenda. He has his own agenda. Yeah. He has his own agenda. So he's going to put Jane forward as a very public, sort of prominent, famous example that can, he can use as an exemplar of this is why you don't do it that way. This is why we need to use the new system. See how well she excels if she's treated friendly by her tutor, John Aylmer. If he coddles her and, and you know, nurtures her, Suddenly, she can read eight languages. Right. Yeah. Elmer. Yeah. That was. Um, yeah. Uh, he. I remember. Yeah. And that, that, it's the, some of that again. It was popular literature coming back to mind. They mentioned Elmer and being a tutor of Edward the <laughs> Sixth. So. Um, so on a related note, uh, the depiction of Jane's victim, more or less. 
of adult schemes. We're going to kind of get into the wider part of her story. Uh, the larger effort, well, I shouldn't say effort because it, it succeeded for a while, uh, to sit Jane on the throne instead of Mary. Well, uh, sorry, I should, I should back up. So, so, uh, King Henry, uh, well, we already mentioned Edward VI. King Henry's died. Edward VI, the young boy king, uh, is naturally the heir because uh, he's the male king. And But he's only king for a short while because he's young, uh, dies. And then we have you know, Jane put on the throne. Um, I guess was uh, – can it be validly seen that um, Jane was really forced to do it or pushed to do it? I mean, what are your thoughts on that, to be to be put on the throne? Um, she wasn't consulted. She was what? I'm sorry? She was not consulted. Okay. Nobody asked her. <laughs> right. They decided it was going to happen, and when it came to it, it was a done deal. She was informed, and that was that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right, and I think, um, you know, uh, there's the – sometimes popularly portrayed maybe in the Lady Jane film, but even in the earlier film, I meant to get to that film, um, the uh, Nova Pilbeam, uh, but uh, she's kind of seen as reluctant uh, to, she, she's reluctant to, but she, she's dutiful in the end, right? She's reluctant. She's like, oh my gosh. And so, I mean, I guess maybe that's possibly could have been accurate. Who knows? Our imagination could play. You know. There is a, a record, um, and it, it's a problematic record, but it's all we have, so we have to work with it. But sometime, probably in August of 1553, this is after Jane has been removed and Queen Mary is on the throne, Jane is in the tower, there was an interview or a letter, historians are divided as to which it was, uh, between Jane and Mary, in which Jane stated that she didn't like what was being what she was being asked to do. Uh, she was very cheerful, she says, at the time she was told she was going to be queen, she supposedly fell to the floor in tears, uh, and made an effort to some degree to resist. But that resistance was exceedingly short lived. Like by the next day she had taken on the job and was signing documents and participating with the process. And there's no evidence of any further resistance. Right. Um, and I'll leave it at that for the moment. I think we're going to enter into a more interesting topic later. So I'll give a teaser for later. In the- yeah, I mean, I'm sure it'll, it'll pop back up. Um, so, uh, so I know Eric Ives, for instance, um, in a book I read from him on Jane Gray years ago, uh, he's probably written. He hasn't written a tremendous, I mean, he's, he's a scholar of Van Gray, but I think he's written two major works. I think it was, it was the one from 10 or 15 years ago. Of course, may he rest in peace. I know he, he's not with us anymore. Um, and again, he's one of the few Jane scholars, right? I mean, there's not, like you said, there's not many of them. I mean, this is a relatively new thing in the academic field. Um, I've says that the Duke of Northumberland, John Dudley, uh, who was Jane's father-in-law, because he had her married, or I won't say that, it's probably a sloppy user, but she was married to his son. This Duke of Northumberland had, um, he often gets a bad rap in 
in the interpretations of the story. Ives called this the black caricature or like the plotting villain of the story, um, driven by ambition. Uh, that Dudley, out of ambition, partly to secure certain whatever, whatever's or whatever for his family, uh, took charge of the effort to place Jane Grey on the throne. This innocent 16-year-old, you know, and put her on the throne. Um, do you agree? I mean, how much do you think is caricature? Do you think Ives is on to maybe something or? I think Ives is dead on. I think he's exactly right. Okay. Uh, again, we have to contextualize the events and understand them relative to everybody else's that. James' own father was an extremely ambitious man. He wanted titles. He wanted um, offices and things, but he wanted them without having to do any work to go along. Mm -hmm. So he didn't get them. Dudley had something to prove in that his family line. Um, had been ambitious historically. Each and every one of his father, grandfather, et cetera, had been ambitious and had paid the ultimate price, had been executed. Uh, Derek Wilson writes in a, a wonderful book called The Uncrowned King, which about several generations of the Dudleys and their efforts to, to you know, rise from basically nothing to the peak of society. Um, that's not uncommon. Ambition, I mean, this is the era when Machiavelli's The Prince for sure, yeah. All about scheming and working your way up through the system. So, Dudley's actions are not, you know, in their context, in their historical context. I think they're. I would agree with that. They're completely understandable. Uh, we have the same sort of issue with James' mother, Frances. She's all, you know, quite often portrayed as this horrible woman who's a harridan in the Helena Bonham Carter film. The actress always looks very stern and wicked, and she's almost landed the lie has called her the the uh, evil stepmother trope. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of like the Cinderella evil stepmother. Exactly, exactly. And and you, ha if you're going to create an ideal in Jane Grey, you have to have a non-ideal other for it to contrast with Jack. Sure. And others for Jane Grey are John Dudley and her own mother, Frances. Yeah, um, and I can see that, like, yeah, there is ambition, but that was, so, I mean, that was a part of what everyone did. So to, sing, to single out maybe the Jane Grey thing is like, a, uh, like he's an extra bad person who put, you know, ambition of self and status above. I mean, like, it's kind of what everyone was doing, and they weren't, yeah. His ambition was not for him. So that wasn't what people in that era were ambitious for. They were ambitious for their family. Mm -hmm. And if one individual can accomplish it for the family, then you know they basically the family rides along on the coattails. And as we see with John Dudley, one of his sons, Robert, Robert Dudley, later became Earl of Leicester and a great favorite of Elizabeth I. But he was in a position to become that favorite because John Dudley had worked his way up through the system. To put his son into an position. What's the book you you mentioned a moment ago about the Dudleys? Derek Wilson is the author, and it's called um, "The Uncrowned King." 
That would be interesting because I know the Dudleys play a big, I mean, for people who are fans of the Elizabeth, Elizabeth story, I mean, you know, Robert shows up. Now, again, maybe not quite like the 1998 film Elizabeth, but he does show up, right? Um, so before we get into religious or pious interpretations of Jane's story since her death, right? Uh, may we, is there a significance? What's the significance that religion plays in Jane's story? And I guess a sub question with that, what does it ultimately play in her fate? I would say. Again, we need to contextualize. We, we can't look at just Jane. We have to look at the entire culture. And religion played a massive, massive role in English culture at the time. From birth to death. We'll start with birth. Births were not registered by the state. They were registered by the church. Mm-hmm. They didn't register the birth. They registered the baptism. So we know the date on which people were baptized, but we sometimes, but we don't necessarily know the date on which they were born because the baptism could be anywhere from one to thirty days after birth. Um, every community was built around a parish, which is an ecclesiastical division of society, not a secular one. Uh, everybody had their local church. People were buried in their local. They got married in their local church. The calendar was arranged by religious holidays, Michaelmas and you know Easter, etc. You didn't refer to something happening in September. You referred to it happening around whatever religious holiday dominates in September. I think it's Michaelmas, but I don't remember. Even to this day, the Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge school system is spoken of as Michaelmas term, Easter term, etc. Even in the 21st century, that's still that's interestingly still some U.S. seminaries in Michaelmas Christmas Fall. Yeah, I did not know that. So clearly, you know, if you have that degree of penetration of religion into virtually every aspect, everyone is religious, and and or you know a believer. Right. Um, And I think it's important to note that in the Elizabethan period, you could incur fines. For failing to go to church. The secular government would impose a monetary fine on you if you didn't show up at church a certain number of times. So for people to be deeply, and too, it was an era in which very little was explainable. Mm. Whether it was thunder or the, you know, where the edge of the earth lies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The only thing they had to explain much of the world around them and the way that world functioned was through religion and through the Bible. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, yeah, like you say, it permeated culture in a way that it quite doesn't today, but still does in some ways. Um, it's, so uh, I know. You, so Dr. Edwards, uh, you know, kind of talking a little bit about Jane Grey, you know, her piety and how much religion played a role in her story and in her, in her fate. I know in the, in the, you know, in, in a lot of uh, interpretations of her story in her life that she's kind of put forth. Um, I think I, I've read from you before as, as a paragon of like piety, uh, especially in the Victorian area. Do you want to elaborate on any of that? 
there is a a um a portrayal of Jane in the popular literature that she was an extremely pious individual that was basically like a nun and lived in isolation and studied religion and that was all she did. Um, and in actuality, we have a letter from her tutor, a very interesting letter from her tutor, John Aylmer, that was written to one of the people that Jane corresponded with, Heinrich Bullinger. It's one of the, you know, the big deals of the Reformation. Right. Jane was in correspondence with him. He was advising her on you know, what to read, how to read it, what languages, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that she corresponded with him itself contributes to the idea that she was extremely pious while ignoring the fact that aristocratic families always corresponded with people like that and patronized them. They gave them money to pursue their education. Uh, Jane's own tutor, John Aylmer, had been put through university, put through his uh, divinity studies by Jane's father. And after he completed those studies, he came to work for the family to educate Jane. So that sort of correspondence with Bullinger cannot in and of itself be read as her being incredibly quiet. However, Aylmer wrote a letter to Bullinger in which he advised, advised Bullinger to advise Jane to put aside, as he put it, braidings of the hair and spending too much time with her music. So where Aylmer wanted her to study religion a lot, Jane clearly had a strong interest in her appearance, in uh, playing music, which is a very popular pastime for young ladies, and in other things besides religion. Mm -hmm. so she was having to be persuaded to study religion. Mm -hmm. kind of goes against the idea that she was, by nature, a very pious individual. Right. And, and at the same time, there's a myth that she always went around in dark clothing, plain clothing, Puritan-type attire. And that's based on a story that was communicated to John Fox, the martyrologist, uh, in which Jane supposedly said something you know, deprecating about Mary having received a gift of tissue of cloth of gold, or yeah, tissue of copper gold and that sort of stuff. You know, very fancy and expensive fabric. And Jane would follow the example of her cousin Elizabeth, who was more modest in her dress. But if we look at portraits of Elizabeth from that period, from exactly that period, Elizabeth was dressed pretty much like everybody else. And Jane probably did too. Had she dressed different from her peers, that would have been unusual. Yeah. And it would have been the subject of discussion and speculation among ambassadors and other people writing letters on the periphery looking in on it. And nobody ever mentions that. So my suspicion is Jane that was is that Jane was at the level of what I'll call religiosity or mm -hmm. equal to that of her peers, and in no way particularly exceptional, other than that. She was exceedingly from an exceedingly wealthy family, and that gave her access to um, religious authorities that other people didn't have. Well, it sounds like that to me. Like it, I always kind of had the suspicion, like you know, her her default uh, faith allegiance is to the type of English Reformed Protestantism that um, her tutors uh, calculated in her. Um, but it wasn't something that she 
perhaps wore on her sleeve in the manner that some of the, you know, much later interpretations may have uh, said. Uh, But that religion, of course, still played a part. It definitely played a part with, you know, her being on the throne and Mary not being in the miracle. You know, so so it's, uh, you know, it's, um, there are, her story is very interesting because there's there's things to, uh, there's things that uh, lend itself to romantic, romanticism romanticization i guess um and uh you know that, and i think that's also why the popular imagination has just been so fascinated with her and why they keeps her visiting her um though i i don't think i've noticed so much in the maybe the past this century but i i know <laughs> the couple centuries leading up to this century it, it really was so um so all right thank you for that question for that answer you were part of a it was a pretty big project. You were part of the publication of Jane Gray's prayer book, which was not, I'll let you elaborate, but from what my understanding was kind of, was she didn't author it, but she was like a prayer book with a lot of marginal notes that you can kind of, you can get a, a, a kind of a glimpse into her religiosity, maybe, maybe not. But uh, what are, give us the details. I know it's, uh, you were, you were the editor of it. Uh, give it, what are some details on that? She, it was fairly common for women of status as well to own prayer books. Now, we need to start by understanding that the percentage of women in England that could actually read in the 16th century was less than 5%. Yeah, small percentage. So we're talking about an extremely small number of women that could read. But those who could read quite often owned prayer books. Bibles were not legal owned by secular people, by, by non-clerics, early in the 16th century and prior to that. That was the purview of the church, not the individual. So instead of Bibles, they had prayer books. And quite often they were very small. You know, they might be only three or four inches. Hers is about four inches. In okay. And they could hang them from a chain off their waist. I mean, they were very decorative, jewel-prized items. She had one. It was, the prayers were prayers that were composed by other people. Some of them very old. Prayer of St. Ambrose, you know, people dating back to the original church fathers, St. Jerome, etc. Mm-hmm. And someone hand wrote those things and then sold them with an industry. And she owned one. Uh, and it eventually landed in the British Library as part of manuscript 2342. For many years, it was displayed in the treasures of the British Library exhibition. But they since pulled it from exhibition because it's become so fragile and no one gets access to it. I've not been granted access to it, even though I've tried many, many times. Um, and even though I quite literally wrote the book on her prayer book, I still was not allowed access to her prayer book. Uh, but yes, it does contain, contain certain marginal notes, but those marginal notes are communications to other people. They're not religious in, in context as such. It's not as though she's writing down her thought on religion is simply communicating to other people that wishes so it's gone that kind of thing. go back so i was at the tower of london uh and it was uh really really neat uh also kind of underwhelming strangely because it's like you watch the movies with the tower of london and you see the art and say yeah as a young american midwestern kid i would see these things of europe and think when i actually got to go over there it would be 
but so you, there's kind of an underwhelming aspect, but um, there's also the events leading. Um, it remind you when I went to the Tower of London, I, rem- I was reminded because they have Jane Gray's uh, interment there in in uh, the, the chapel there. Uh, Peter de Vincula, I think the name of the chapel. Yes, and uh, lots of people are there. I was surprised. Like, gosh, all the all the that that one point in time, the the deemed bad guys were all there. Uh, but uh, but but are they really? Well, no, but yeah, I mean, it's I'm they were. Raising, I'm raising a question: Are they really? Because some of them aren't. I don't think several of those people. I don't think were ever buried. Wherever what? Wherever buried there. Oh, yeah, perhaps. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't know much of the history of the site, but, uh, you know. Um, so the, uh, which, and I was there, and, and uh, it was kind of a kind of a full circle moment because I read about Jane Grey when I was a younger person. But uh, the events leading to her execution, her tower days, I wasn't aware that um, as I watched the documentary recently, I didn't watch it all. I watched a, uh, a lot of the first episode, a lot of the third episode, and, and I need to get more of the second of the. Um, I'm not sure who wrote, but half a second. Okay. Um, for our uh, for our listeners, I did not mention this for our listeners. Uh, what I'm referring to is the forgotten England's forgotten queen, which is a, I guess a docudrama series and Dr. Edwards is featured on there. Uh, they, they bring him in and, and quite a, quite a bit uh, to interview him about uh, things about Jane Grey. It's pretty well done. A good overview of her life. Um, but I, uh, and I wasn't aware that the tower wasn't some place they sent her to like once, you know, she was condemned to die. Like she was already there. I mean, the her, sure. she was there with her privy council. That was a place. It was multifunctional space, I guess. Yeah, you know, it wasn't just uh, like a prison or a place you go to uh, where you die. But I guess um, I was always curious from kind of your research, Dr. Edwards. What's um, once she was there as a prisoner? What was her? What did daily life entail for someone who just sat on the throne for nine days, you know, and is now there? Well, let's let's back up for a second and understand why she went into the tower to begin with. The tower had had great symbolism in the English national identity, and it's traditional up until probably the 18th century that on accession, the monarch would go to the tower to await coronation. This symbolized that they had control of London, and with control of London came control of the country. It also protected them, because they were inside a fortress. So it was a, you know, a, a multifaceted sort of idea. Uh, when Mary came to the throne and finally got to London on the 21st, I think it was about the 21st of August, she went to the tower. And that's where she stayed for a couple of weeks. Not as a prisoner, but as the new queen. So yes, Jane was in the tower as a as a reigning monarch for a number of days. And then when she wasn't a reigning monarch anymore, they moved her into the tower, the quarters of the gentleman jailer. She wasn't put in a dungeon. The tower doesn't have dungeons. She was in the private residence of somebody who worked there, along with his wife and children. 
but she was living in an upstairs room. But she was confined to that room. She sure. was under, let's put it in a modern context, it was like being in COVID isolation, COVID quarantine. She had to stay in that room, period. And it required permission of the privy council for her to leave that room. And we have records of her being allowed to go out and what they call walk on the lead, which means walk on the roof. The roof were made of lead. Um, she could walk on the roof because she couldn't escape from the roof three stories up. Right. But it required the permission of the city council for her even to do that. Okay. She, she was in close confinement. Basically, she was in a jail cell that didn't have bars. So, I mean, yeah, a very, very controlled environment. Yes. So the privy council at that point, who was, I mean, I'll get into a moment how her, her privy council kind of trickled away. But So this was like Mary's uh, privy council? Correct. Okay. Um, Although it was some of the same people that had served on Jane's privy council. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I watched the documentary like, oh, yeah, some of these people were just kind of. continuity. Yes, there's some continuity, some interesting switch, switch sides like that. The switch sides like that, right? Um, so, uh, you know, when I read kind of the pieces about her very last days in the tower, up to her execution, and then the day of, of course, Guildford, her husband is executed, and we don't really cover too much of Guildford, but um, I've always heard from popular tellings of the story that. She uh, was very just went into shock and grief when she saw from her window or whatever she was looking through the execution of her husband, which uh, took place a short time before she was sent down to be executed. Um, You know, I wonder, I mean, because also popular depictions say, well, she wasn't really, she was reluctantly married, right? So, I mean, was there love there? I mean, what was it? Is it true that she was just very distraught? from Guildford's death? Did she even witness it? That she did not witness his death. Okay. She was executed outside the Tower Precinct on Tower Hill, which is immediately adjacent. If you go there today, there's a Tower Hill tube station, subway station. And that is where the Tower Hill was. And it's 200 yards from the Tower itself. Uh, so she did not see his execution. She did see, according to a diarist that was living in the tower at the time, that diarist recorded that Jane did see his body brought back in on a cart to a late burial. That diarist did not record anything about her being distraught or anything else. That is a, and she may well have been, but that is a, a popular myth. That is one of the many popular myths that was basically invented out of whole cloth and has no support in the primary documentation whatsoever. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, there was also there was a carving. I know you know, as I hopefully I can. I know you'll know what I'm probably talking about. There's a someone etched Jane into the wall. What's the story behind that? So for our listeners, I mean, I've, I'll let Dr. Edwards elaborate on it because he'll know more than I do. But I know uh, from Guildford Cell, I guess there was a. Jane was kind of carved into the wall, her husband, uh, where he was. What's the story behind that? Is there a, I know his mother's name was Jane as well, right? Yes, Gilford's mother was also Jane. Okay. Um, John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, his wife was 
gang, Guilford, Douglas, or maybe may have been Guilford. Uh, but again, it's important to contextualize that engraving. It's in a room in the Beeson Tower, and that room was used to hold high status prisoners. And again, it's not a dungeon. No bars on the windows, none of that kind of stuff. It was a well-furnished, semi-luxurious room for these people to await their trial and execution or whatever. Uh, but that room is absolutely covered with engravings and carvings oh. where people awaiting their, their trial or whatever had nothing more to do, so they started engraving things in the wall. There's a huge one, probably two feet, two and a half feet wide, that John Dudley and his sons are believed to have done. It's the Dudley family arms with mottos and all kinds of stuff. It's unfinished, but it's just big, really fun. Yeah. And you can walk through that room seeing signatures and stuff from all the great characters of British of English legal history. So the fact that anyone carved the name Jane into that windowsill is not exceptional. And there's absolutely no way to know which of the many billions of Danes lived in that era it refers to. But because the Dudleys did carve their own inscription, it's presumed that that Jane necessarily refers to Jane Grey. There are, however, two Janes carved into that same windowsill. So did he carve it twice? Are they two different Janes? Are they totally unrelated to the Dudleys? We just don't know. We don't know, right? But because it sells tickets to the tower, and I'm sorry if I'm being cynical here, but because it sells tickets to the tower, the tower personnel have seen fit to promote and, and, and continue the idea that it was caused by Guildford for Jane even though there's no evidence to support that whatsoever. Sure. Well, I, I, like that's a part of the story, and I mean, the. You know, it's always presented like it was this one name carved, in the, you know, so I get it. I mean, could have been Jane Grey, but if they're, if the Dudleys are carving all their, you know, names of family into it, then it's, yeah, it's, it's naturally she would be there. Um, and in, in actuality, in, in England, in that era, the number of female names that were in use is surprisingly small. I mean, we're talking a dozen or so. Everybody's a Mary, a Francis, a Jane, a Catherine. Right. And, and so there's, there are so many women in that period that were named Jane. If it were a unique name of some kind, that would be different. But it's an exceptional common name for that period. So trying to Yeah, very common names. There's only eight or nine names that so many people held, right? Um, so, you know, Mary, uh, you know, I'd recommend if people want to really appreciate the uh, magnitude of, of the events that led Mary being, sorry, that led Jane Grey being dethroned after her very short reign, uh, as far as Mary's coup, uh, to check out the Eric Ives book, um, and also to check out England's Forgotten Queen, which is that docudrama series that Dr. Edwards is on quite a bit in. Um, they they talk, they go into some pretty great detail. They bring some other people on too to talk, go into really great detail about Mary's, um, her very successful uh, usurping, I guess, of Jane, even though she saw herself as the rightful heir. Uh, but, but, 
if I may, I'd like to yeah. suggest another book that, that I think is in many ways better written than Eric Eisenberg's book. Okay. It's by Leander Delisle. Leander Delisle, yeah. The Sisters Who Would Be Queens. And it's the story of all three of the great sisters. It's a collective biography. And it, that book traces how there were attempts to put all three of the sisters in succession onto the throne and how each of the three sisters came to a, quote, bad end because of those efforts. Um, Leanda's book is very, very good, very readable. She has a uh, degree in history, an undergraduate degree in history, I believe from Oxford, if I remember correctly. So she knows where else she's yeah, I, and I know she. She, I think, showed up in that that documentary as well. And uh, Leander De, Delisle, 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 and I've seen. I think I saw her book advertised in a search on Jane Grey. I mean, it was. It was a re, I mean, a good, um, reputable person, uh, but also uh, um, popular in a sense too. That people, a lot, a lot of people. Um, it's a good go-to, a good common go-to. So, um, so yeah. It's an interesting, interesting, ironic connection. Her last name is Delisle, and John Dudley's first note title of nobility was Delisle, and the two are connected. There you go. Yeah. Not directly related to them, but but they are here to connect. Yeah. That is an interesting connection. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, yeah, check her out, check Dr. Edwards out, Eric Hives out for our different, um, you know, there's not many of them, but there are people very devoted to the study of Jane Grace for our people, people listening. Um, so Jane and her Privy Council, they, they were very panicked. Um, I know in the movie, uh, the movie, it seemed interesting because it, it's, it, the movie presented the, the, doc, the England's Forgotten Queen docudrama that we've been talking about the past few minutes kind of talked about how in the end uh is is you know uh it seems like the whole world is against jane and her privy councils kind of trickling out one by one that uh jane actually kind of showed some assertiveness maybe showed some power uh, and it wasn't all just the duke of northumberland the controlling the child monarch right Correct. started to show some some power herself. Um, yeah, several, several days into the reign, um, the Marcus of Winchester, the Lord Treasurer, came to Jane with some royal jewels and included with that the crown and asked her to try it on. And recognizing the symbolic importance of the crown, she refused to do so. She would not put it on her head because in a religious context, wearing that crown meant that you fully accepted the role. And as long as she didn't put it on her head, she could kind of waver or prevaricate. And I never put the crown on my head, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but he, the, the Marcus of Winchester made the suggestion to Jane that a new one would be made to crown her husband. And I go back to what I said earlier about she was not consulted on any of this stuff. This was the first she had heard, apparently, that Guilford was going to be co-regnant, was going to be king along with her. And her sort of meek, dirt reaction, according to her own words in the conversation with Mary that I mentioned earlier, um, she said, no, I'm not going to do that. 
if Parliament wants to make them king, that's fine. But I'm not going to do it. And my theory is that completely upset, you know, thwarted the plans of Pretty Council, Dudley, and everybody else. Oh my God, we can't control this girl. She's not going to do what we tell her to do. What do we do now? Mm-hmm. Well, we revert back to the rightful heir, Mary's birth. Right. And that's when the trickle started. I mean, literally, that night is when the trickle started. Wow. And, and it, you know, it. And it also shows, I mean, some of them, they were kind of lukewarm to begin with, right? I mean, uh, I know that the film mentioned that, uh, you know, they all sort of one by one drift away and abandon Jane. Um, some were Catholic, some were Protestant. They had these different allegiances, right? Correct. Um, yeah, I thought that was a very interesting. Again, our listeners, check that film out. It's very good. Um so, uh, and she dies, of course. Sorry. This is the 1986 film you're recommending? No, I'm recommending the oh, uh, England's the- Forgotten Queen, yeah. Which, it may have been in the 1986 film. They may have covered that. I don't know. But I was talking about the docudrama you were in. The Forgotten Queen. Okay. Yeah, Forgotten Queen. England's Forgotten Queen, right. And I forget the subtitle. It was England's Forgotten Queen. It's, a, it's three episodes, each about an hour long. You can view it. Uh, Almost free or free, depending on. Uh, very good. Uh, it's it's very good. Well done. Um, and uh, of course, she dies in. So, what is that year? Is it fifteen fifty? Jane died. Yeah. Uh, February twelfth, fifteen fifty four. Fifteen fifty four. Okay, and um, she's become uh, the popular in uh, kind of Protestant martyrology and kind of in the Victorian period. Are, do you feel, what, what's kind of the, and I, and I know there are, there are reasons why she could be interpreted that way, but also to read her through her later lens, uh, maybe have caused some, you know, I know definitely from your angle, some, some kind of detriment to the way to really see Jane. I mean, what, what do you feel has been unhelpful about that or not? I guess kind of a big question, but <laughs> big question. Yeah, um, Jane did kind of disappear from the historical landscape uh, until sixteen, about sixteen sixty, and there was an author who wrote a history of the Reformation of the Church of England called Peter Hayley, and he kind of resurrected her, uh, but he was writing to an agenda because the church at that time. This is post Cromwellian. Mm-hmm. So the church in England was trying to decide if it was going to retain the Puritan aspects of the Cromwellian protectorate, or was it going to go with Charles II, who came to the throne that year, and have a more ornate, um, um, what's the word, quasi Catholic church. Sure. Um, and so he was. Halen was promoting a particular agenda. Sure. Then Jane comes back to the fore again in 1715 when the succession moved out of England and George of Hanover, George I, became King of England because of his descent through out of James I and his predecessors, the last of the Stuarts, didn't have any children or their children didn't survive, et cetera, et cetera. Queen Anne had had like 11 children and all had died before she did. So the throne passed to George, and then we get to talk about rebellion. 
where people want to maintain the Stuart line. So, and that's the Scottish line. So, Jane is put forward as the religiously appropriate person, the right person to be on the throne. Uh, and then it happens again in the 1830s. In 1832, England was concerned, at that time in the United Kingdom, was considering uh, emancipation tax and the Reform Act of that year. Prior to the 1830s, Catholics could not vote, could not hold public office, could not serve in the military. Because they were Catholic, they were barred from a lot of things. And it was decided that that was not the best way to move forward, that Catholics could be allowed full entry into society. Well, there were people that opposed that. And they, again, resurrected Jane Grey to say, this is what should be right. And see what these nasty Catholics do. They kill people like Jane Grey. They burn hundreds of people at the stake. They have the Inquisition. They do all these awful things. We can't allow them to, to enter society fully. Ultimately, the Emancipation Act passed, and Catholics are now allowed into almost all offices, but they're still legally barred from holding the crown. Yeah, so so there's definitely historical factors, uh, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, you know, and I always sense that too. I mean, you get the churchmanship wars, and for listeners of our podcast, I mean, we, we've covered a lot of that ground of kind of an Anglicanism in the Church of England alone. You had the different parties, the different wings of piety and churchmanship, um, and they all had an agenda to some extent. And you know, we were, we were, would lift certain figures of the past up. I think, you know, Richard Hooker, for instance, is <laughs> whether you're evangelical, liberal, or Anglo-Catholic, they all try to take Hooker and put him as their person. And there's a little bit of truth to what each party's doing, but also um, there's some distortion or, you know. Uh, so uh, Jane Grey is, uh, has played, a, has fell to that, has been uh, taken in that same way. And so... Um, so uh, I'm going to read more of your book on the portraits. Uh, I, I know I've heard before that there are a lot of portraits that have been uh, attributed to be, oh, this is Jane and this, and they're like, well, we don't know. And so I'm curious to read more of it. I have it on my, on my desk. And um, uh, kind of a final question before we, we close, what, are, what have been some of the key highlights of your research on Jane over the year? What, the things that really some of the, the best memories of your research, I guess you could say, on Jane Grey? That's an exceedingly difficult question. Um, I'm sure it is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, there are, there are situations through the research process that would be highlights. I don't know if there's any informational highlights as such, except perhaps um, several years ago, I did come across a, a, pure, a pure book from the uh, 1560s, 1570s, uh, that happened to have two letters that talk about Jane Grey, and those letters were previously entirely unknown to the academic community. Uh, and I've got them on my website. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I have some discussion of them there. And that, that kind of changed a few things. Um, but, you know, during the research process, the big highlight for me has been handling some of these documents. Um, for example, there's very little 
of Jane Gray's writing that exists. Sure. Um, you know, there's, there's discussion, for example, of a letter she wrote to her sister on the frontispiece of a Greek New Testament. That Greek New Testament doesn't exist anymore. So that letter has not survived. We only know it because somebody mentioned it in 1554. There is one letter that survived. It was written when Jane was much younger. She was about 10 or 11 years old. And she wrote it to Thomas Seymour. Um, and that letter is now held by the British Archives at Kew, the National Archives. And in order to view that letter, I had to go through an enormous application process. Then I had to go through TSA-style security suite. Oh, my gosh. And the whole business. And then I had to go into a vault, like a great big bank vault, with two security guards, one at each of my shoulders, and a curator standing there watching me as I, you know, handled and read this, this particular letter. I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about it. It's such yeah. a, a strange experience. It's such, such a great national treasure that there was all of this, you know, process around me getting to it. But at the same time, that entire letter was written with Jane's own pen. And it's the only letter in existence that's entirely written with her own pen. Wow. She signed, she signed a lot of others, but she did not write the secretary's work. Sure. She wrote this one in full. That's a, a thank you letter to Thomas Seymour. And, you know, we write thank you letters ourselves in hand. But to actually hold that and to have that connection across almost 500 years of history, you, know, you sit there and you go, she wrote this, she held it, now I'm holding it. Now you're holding it. Too cool. Your hands have touched something, her hands have, yeah. And that is, I mean, on one level, I get the level of security. On another, I'm kind of surprised. I did not know people put that much security into historical things oh, like yeah. that. That's, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of the things at the British Library are in subterranean vaults that are nuclear bomb proof. Really? That's the level of security to take the Absolutely. Wow. And well, that's incredible. I mean, you're probably one of, you know, few that have, uh, that have touched it. So, um, well, thank you. It has been a tremendous honor to have you on the show. Um, you know, I, there's not many people who have, uh, just researched Jane Gray's life like, like you have. And so, um, very appreciative of you being on here. Uh, this has uh, been a pleasure for me. Uh, just, uh, you know, reading a, a lot about her much earlier in my life and just, uh, to kind of, um, you know, talk to someone who's, who's really done a lot of research. This has been great. So just want to, uh, wish you the best with your continuing research, whatever your upcoming projects are. Um, and, uh, thank you for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure. And, uh, I'll ask you to stay a second after, after I stop the recording, I'll, I'll edit that bit that I just put in. So, all right. Thank you. Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doth Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel, we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. 
Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.